You're listening to Arrowhead Radio. He doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. You can't steer a boat that's not moving. We, need, we as Christians, we need to start opening our mouths. And it says that he who believes on the Son has life, and he that does not believe um, does not have life, and the wrath of God abides on him. Uh, to me, one of the greatest things God did to me was give me peace, give me a hope, give me a promise. And I thought, I have eternal life. I'm, I'm about for heaven, and it's, it's forever. I'm Mark Dana. And I'm Venus Cote. And this is Hope to the Nations. So, Venus, today we're going to have a talk with Harry Stelter. Yes, I, I'm, I'm interested in listening to him because I've only heard his name. I've never met him. And I've heard some things about him, positive thoughts, of course. Yeah, and I think he's written a couple books. Yeah, I've got a couple books. So, Perry, you live in Edmonton area? I'm in Stony Plain, just outside of Edmonton. Okay. okay. Well, we want to welcome you to our chat time here. Yes, this sounds exciting. Maybe you could share with us, a little, and, our, and always the people that are listening, share a little bit about growing up for you, your, your story. Yeah, both me and my wife have similar stories where we were adopted off our original Indigenous communities mm -hmm. and uh, didn't meet our biological families until later on in life. We both grew up in non-Indigenous families going to church. It was uh, quite a bit of a culture shock, I guess you could say, when we did meet our families because there was mm -hmm. such a difference in the way they lived and did things and thought about things. I ended up going back and living on my couple communities just outside of Edmonton that I had family members from, Alexander First Nation and Enoch Cree Nation, and, and uh, spent some time, I guess, getting to know my family. And well, it just so happens around that time, I was going to a bit of a rebellious stage. And I had already been living away from, from home for a few years. And I wasn't able to finish high school until later on because I um, dropped out of high school about three times and I just didn't seem to have what it took to finish it. And that was all part of my rebellious stage. It was quite interesting because when I came to live on uh, a few of the First Nations communities where my family members were from, some of my family members drank and some had been sober for a while and we're trying sobriety, but there was a lot of, um, they were really loose. I guess when it came to th things like smoking cigarettes and swearing and, and the lifestyle of sleeping around. And so for me at the time, I ended up being happy about that and embracing that because that's what I was wanting out of life at the time because of the rebellious stage I was in. But then I ended up um, making my way back and connecting with some of my original roots to the, the church because I was a, a bit of a binge drinker. I wasn't an everyday drinker, but it was enough of a problem that it got me into trouble. And yeah, that kind of took its toll in, in my life where I, I've been sober now, completely sober now about 20 years, but it was quite the process of um, 
because on the one hand, I was moving forward with getting an education, entering the workforce, you know, here and there sporadically, but I just couldn't completely sober up. So it just seemed like when it, it caused enough pain and heartache, especially as I started starting a young family, mm. uh, then that's when I finally just had enough of um, that lifestyle just because of all the, the pain and the suffering that it caused. So it was your kind of that period of your life that you sought out your birth family. How did you even come to know that they were your family? Actually, I had gotten a phone call from one of my social workers around the time I turned 18. And she said, um, here's a, a phone number of one of your aunties. And here's a phone number of, I think she had two or three phone numbers. Like I had um, after that conversation with the social worker. And the information she gave me, I think I had a few phone numbers. And so I ended up within a fairly short amount of time meeting my uh, brother for the first time who was two years older and then went and had a meal with my late mother. And then she brought me out to one of the communities where I met some uncles and aunts and cousins. So yeah, it was just, um, I guess, within a short amount of time, I started meeting these relatives, but where... I ended up living out there was because the government had said, even though you're 18, Perry, as long as you, um, well, it's like a lot of kids that are in foster care come from adopted backgrounds. The government says that they'll, as long as a person's going to school or doing something productive, they'll mm-hmm. support them until they're 21 or different provinces, maybe different ages. But so that's sort of the situation I was in, but I'd, dropped out of high school and I knew I was going to lose my place and I wasn't even going to try to talk to the social worker or anything. I just, I dropped out of high school. I uh, was talking to this brother of mine who I got a hold of and he says, Oh, did you know you have an uncle that runs the campground out in Alexander first nation every summer. And so it was around springtime that this, conversation took place and so then I was saying to him I think I might be in trouble here because I don't go to school anymore I dropped out and I'm not sure where I'm gonna do where I'm gonna live so then he says oh you should go give uh, your uncle a call you know he's separated from his wife right now but you can go live with him and he won't really pay you much but you'll get free room and board and he'll buy you cigarettes and and snack food and maybe give you a little bit of pocket change from time to time and so that was my introduction. And so because he ended up, uh, we were working at the campground, which was just down the road from his house. It ended up being a natural way for me to be introduced to the community because, of course, everybody came to the campground and the beach. And so my uncle would just, you know, constantly be introducing me. And he was actually quite proud about it. He was, oh, this is my nephew, you know, from Mary you know newborn and he'd speak in Cree and speak in English and be introducing me left and right to all these people and and then it was kind of funny because he would we'd be going you know to different houses in the community visiting and he'd say oh this is your mushroom and this is your cookum and then he'd come to somebody else this is your mushroom this is your cookum and I'd like how many mushrooms and cookums do I have <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just said that last guy was <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to realize the whole 
extended family concept. And um, <laughs> so that was kind of the hilarious side, getting used to it. But no, I felt fairly well received and I get I got along with the people. And it was just my unstable lifestyle more than anything that just was constantly causing the problems. But yeah, the fact that the, my family members were very loose in their, I guess, in their morals with those types of things I had mentioned, it was... For me, that's what I was looking for, and I enjoyed that because I didn't, you know, I was running away from God, and that's what I wanted out of life. So it took me quite a while to work through that and, you know, hit my own rock bottom. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting experience. I'm sure it was because uh, it would be, uh, what can I say, how can I say it, it would like a shock to the system in a sense because all of a sudden you were raised in a Christian home, this is your life, and now all of a sudden you're, this is a whole new life altogether that uh, your family doesn't know God and they're just living their life as they know know how to live. Yeah, and they're they're mad at the quickly learn the term white man because they'd always refer, oh, that white guy, this white guy, that, and white man, this, yeah. white man that. Just a lot of anger. And even one of my aunties says, do you know that people are scared of me because I'm an Indian? And it's like, oh, okay. And and uh, so it was almost like she was proud of her anger and her presentation of herself and how society saw her like, oh, you better not mess with me. I'm, you know, I'm Indian and I'm, you know, don't mess with me and that type of thing. Eh? And my quite the contrast from what I was used to, even with the because um, there was the Christian home that I grew up in and the Christian community within that through the church and the boys clubs and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. And then there was the non-Christian crowd that I wanted to be a part of, which I did become a part of and embrace that. But then going out to the the First Nations community, well, that was then totally different from either of those two things. <laughs> right, just, it's a whole other world. <laughs> yeah. But I, I experienced enough of living in the community and then working. I worked for a First Nations organization for about four or five years and got to know my people even more through through working in this one organization in a few different uh, positions. But even there, when I managed to gain the favor of a few people and get a decent job, you know, I screwed it up through absenteeism and things like that. So it was shortly after that that I hit my, my rock bottom because here I was, you know, at that time had a bachelor's degree and was starting to move forward in life by you know working and then it all just fell apart and fell to pieces and because it was hurtful the I guess the pain that I felt I caused to my family too and all the things that I said I didn't want to do or the things that ended up happening and so that was mm -hmm. another interesting part of my journey because I always said to myself especially when I was first introduced to my family is that Oh, I'm just going to meet, you know, one woman and I'm just going to have, I'm going to marry her and I'm just going to have kids with one woman and none of this, you know, kids from all these different dads and all this sort of story. And, but that's exactly ended up what, what ended up happening because I had brought in uh, two kids into the world uh, with two women before I met my wife and she had done the same. She had brought in, I think, four kids into the world before I, I met my wife and we've been married about 20 years now and happily married and been faithful Wonderful. to each other. But yeah, we met in the church because even when I was struggling to find my 
you know, identity as an indigenous person struggling to get back on track with my roots of Christianity and um, struggling with, you know, getting rid of this binge drinking and compulsive gambling and these types of things. I still ended up meeting my wife in the church, in the First Nations Church in Edmonton. And so, yeah. yeah, so that was kind of the the interesting part of it. But yeah, it took me a while to find my bearings again. There was a number, a few years there where I just had no passion for anything. And we were kind of on welfare and just going to the food bank a lot. And I just lost my passion for everything. And then I back through the First Nations community again through this indigenous organization that had offered um training for people i started this uh, truck driver training course and for me that was a a blessing because at that time we had lost our children to child welfare and one of our daughters seven months old died of sids and all that happened around the same time and so that was part of what was the tremendous wake-up call for me like losing our daughter dying of SIDS and at the same time uh, getting involved with child welfare and losing our kids a few times and and it taking a number of years for us to get them back. But I was totally heartbroken during that time and spent a tremendous amount of time literally bawling my eyes out and crying because of uh, being separated from the children. And so, mm. yeah, going to this truck driving school and then driving truck, semi-trucks, around Edmonton and Alberta and occasionally out of province trips for three to four years. That's actually what kept my sanity. That gave me something constructive to do and um, kept my mind, I guess, off of being more destructive than I, because by then I think I had sobered up as well by the time I started the truck driver training. And so when I entered this new career at the time for me, I had already been sober. And so for me, Although being a part of the church and falling in love with God, I think really for the first time in a deep way and falling in love with the Bible. Yeah, it was a process where I just, it was a really lonely time, but God used that lonely time to draw me to himself because I spent a tremendous amount of time uh, reading the Bible, listening to preachers on the radio, listening to Christian music. And we didn't go to church a whole lot because of, uh, my wife started driving truck shortly after that as well. We took the same uh, truck driver program, and so we were both driving truck, starting to bring in some money. Had a couple of vehicles. I had sobered up, visiting the kids whenever we could, and uh, so things were slowly but surely moving forward. And then, and then in 2009, I answered the call to enter into a life of ministry where I didn't know what it was going to look like. Just that I had fallen in love with the Word of God was developing a passion to go into ministry again, but I thought maybe I had screwed up one too many times. And we, me and my wife were talking and I talked about going to seminary and she goes, well, your, your band has supported you all those other years while you're going to school. Maybe they'll support you again. All I can say is no. And so to make a long story short, I, um, starting in 2009, I, I went to Taylor Seminary in Edmonton and got a master's degree, a master of divinity. And then now through Providence, I'm three quarters of the way through a doctorate, doctorate of ministry. I'm just currently writing my dissertation right now. And I finished, I did all my coursework a few years back. And, and so this whole time I've been on this, there was only about a year and a half in between the two seminaries 
I've attended. And it was interesting because I was getting references from different people when I applied for the doctorate of ministry. And one of the professors at Taylor Seminary says, you just graduated a year ago, Perry. Most people that go work for 10 years and then go for a doctorate of ministry. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I've already wasted enough time. <laughs> I got to get on this. <laughs> well, that's good news. Good to hear. But even I could see the providence and the sovereignty of God even in the, when I applied for both seminaries because, like I said, I was feeling not very hopeful that I had a second chance of going into ministry. And my wife just gently said, you know, all I can say is, no, your band supported you before, just apply. So I did, and literally within a, a month, I had I got accepted to the program and also got the accepted for the funding and within a short amount of time we went from living in downtown Edmonton in a slum landlord apartment where the drug pushers and everybody else was outside our door to then living on campus at Taylor Seminary in a nice quiet serene environment and then when I applied for the doctorate of ministry I applied and then they came back and says oh no you don't have enough work experience very so apply in a few years. So then all of a sudden I got this email from somebody at the seminary and and I said, oh, I got this email from you guys. I'm not sure if it was meant for me, but while I've got your attention, I said, um, would it be possible for me just to take one course? And they said, no, you're either in the program or you're not in the program. There's no such thing as just taking one course. And so then he goes, oh, tell me again your work experience. And so I told him it, and he goes, can you send that to me in an email? I think we might be able to do something. And it's like, what? Oh. <laughs> so boom, next thing you know, I was accepted. And it was, like I said, it wasn't me getting a hold of them, begging them, please let me in. It was this email I got about something that I had nothing to do. I had no idea what it was about, but I just threw out a random, what I thought was a random comment about, oh, could I take one course? And then that led to me being accepted and so I was like oh okay I guess I am going <laughs> so so yeah well I could see the hand of God and I've, I've just seen the hand of God uh, build me up like this powerful powerful network of uh, a support system that I have in place now that I could never ever say what I do in ministry now that I've done it by myself it's just like God has mm. not only sent people in my direction to help me and encourage me and Everything from starting my website to to doing a weekly Bible teaching program on the radio to writing two books to all the newspapers and magazines I write for to the speaking in churches and the workshops. It's just like are some of the promotional materials I have with some of the posters I have that promote reconciliation and forgiveness and building mm -hmm. bridges. Like God has strategically constantly sent me specific people with specific skill sets to help me in each of those areas like somebody specifically to help me get the website going and build it help me yeah. build the website and uh or somebody to specifically help me with uh put together a brochure or business cards or a poster or somebody specifically to help me with the graphic design of the the first book or somebody specifically that helped me with the editing of the second book and publishing it and it's just like oh my goodness it's just mm. it just blows me away when i think of how much you know god has allowed me to be a part of you know and then we got our 
our kids back shortly around the time I graduated from the first seminary. And so that was a huge breakthrough to get our kids back mm. in their mid-teens. And, um, but it was God's way of saying to you, I haven't forgotten about you. I know your heart was broken. I know your kids' hearts were broken from being separated, but I'm, I'm going to redeem the past and I'm going to give them back to you be- three years before they become adults so that you can build into their lives. And, you know, none of the, the three kids that we got back are into drugs or alcohol or anything. Um, and so I can see how God has even protected them when they were separated from us. And that is amazing. Yeah, and that was obviously... Once again, it was nothing I could claim I did because I wasn't yeah. with them. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it's your faithfulness to the Lord. You were faithful to him. And he saw that and he looked at that. Yeah, and he, he sees those, those tears that we've cried and, and the prayers that we've prayed and, and our honest confession of our sins. And just, mm. you know, Earlier on, I... When I was driving truck, I used to have these really deep, intimate prayers with God where I would be listening to either a gospel song or a preacher, and I would get really excited, and I would even just start banging on the dash of the truck when nobody's in there, and I'm going, yes, God, I'm a sinner, and I'm a lousy father, and I was a lousy husband, and forgive me, Lord, I'm so sorry, and just, um, I would bawl my eyes out as I was driving down the road, and and it yeah. was just a, d- a deep time of cleansing and confession where I just, you know, admitted every fault that came to my mind to God. And that was what built the foundation of going into the life of ministry was that honest confession before God of si- mm. telling, him, telling him exactly what he already knew. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me encourage you. I was in Winnipeg a couple of years ago and uh, I was sitting with these two ladies and they teach, uh, a Bible study to ladies, native ladies. And I asked them, well, what are you teaching? What book are you using? And they they mentioned your name, and that's the first time I've ever heard your name. She said, we're using uh, Perry Stellarton's book, and yeah. we're teaching from that. And they said it's a really good book to teach from. And I thought, well, I thought, is it in bookstores? Well, I couldn't find it anywhere and. and all of a sudden, you showed up on Facebook, and that's how. Then I then I realized, wow, that's uh, if they're using that book, and these ladies are growing from it. You have already begun your ministry. Yeah, there's been some exciting times like that, where there was a a, a lady who works in the federal women's prison at Edmonton who bought bought about eight copies off me and said she was going to use them in a Bible study in the women's prison. So. Yeah, there's been a few situations like that where, you know, God has opened the door and allowed um, to be used in unique ways like that. What is the name of your ministry? Uh, Word of Hope Ministries. And what does it do or what what is your what is the main foundation of your ministry? What are you hoping to accomplish? Or Well, the word Word of Hope Ministries, that's exactly the thing, you know, the Word of God as in a Word of Hope. And so... I didn't want it to be Perry Stelter Ministries or Stelter Ministries or anything like that. I wanted it to all be about the Word of God. And so everything that I do, whether it's writing books, writing articles, doing workshops, or speaking at churches, it's all focused on the Word of God and 
and one of the phrases I have on many of my different uh, ministry products or or on my website is um, the term making the Bible come alive. And so that term goes hand in hand with like it's word of hope ministries, making the Bible come alive. And so it's, I mean, and there's so many, so many different ways to do that in unique ways, whether it's just through pure biblical teaching or exegetical preaching and taking a look at the key words or their cultural background and making the Bible come alive in that way. And, taking it deeper than just a, a quick read or whether it taking the things talked about in scripture and, and looking for the parallels in indigenous culture and worldview and mm. uh, making the comparisons and saying, you know, you're, it's kind of like the apostle Paul would say, well, your teachers say this, but the word of God says this. And so in the same way I say, well, your ancestors have said this, but the word of God also says this. And um, so in my second book, I used the Dreamcatcher story because it's such a controversial issue within the indigenous Christian community. Um, and so I took something that was very controversial because of so many different people um, getting caught up and saying, well, just throw that Dreamcatcher away, burn it, don't have anything to do with that. Or So I took something that was controversial and I said, um, I made the comparisons of in scripture and I and I uh, said well here is the original dreamcatcher story and this is traditionally what it means but then I went back and forth and said within you know there's about seven main themes within this dreamcatcher story and then I would um make the parallels I'd say in the dreamcatcher story the first theme is this but in the bible we we also see that same theme and so I went back and forth with the seven different themes that I saw jumping out in the Dreamcatcher story and then left the reader with the encouragement to just say, okay, instead of telling somebody to just throw out their Dreamcatcher and, and things like that, why don't you just stop and talk about, talk about it in the way that I'm talking about it in the book and say, first of all, do you know what the Dreamcatcher story is about traditionally? And then say, you know, talk about the parallels in scripture and and so in that way it makes the bible come alive and can hopefully repair some bridges that have been burnt through different things that have happened within colonialism over the last 500 years so so that story was is that a cree origin story i I've uh, it's really actually kind of lakota like from the okay. states a lot of people will say but it's so yeah it's about a lakota spiritual a leader a teacher in the story so it's but it's it's one of those things that many different indigenous tribes have adapted and i was going to say i grew up on the prairies and we never yeah. heard, we never heard anything about that growing up yeah and so i mean sometimes you when i first came to the reserve you'd you'd hear the um superstitious talk and and things like Oh, when you're looking at the northern lights, don't whistle. Your bad things will happen to you, or you know these, <laughs> you know these types of things. <laughs> They're going to come down and smother you. That's what we were told. <laughs> yeah, or um, or the the other cultural things, depending on where you're from. Like if if somebody dies, me much because I can't whistle very well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, or about the um. 
if somebody dies, you know, you're not supposed to cry and you're holding your spirit back if you do and all that sort of stuff. And, or you, yeah, you're holding their spirit back from going to the next world. If you cry, you're, you'll be holding them back, so don't cry and those types mm -hmm. of things. So it's, yeah. but well, these are the types of things too that uh, have kept our, our people in bondage with them. Um, with fear it's, it's just, but i try to t just instead of it i guess attacking those issues and just um attacking my own people which i think has been done enough is just yeah. to simply say point to these types of things and just say well you know this this is kind of a controversial issue but let's take a look at scripture and so i try to look for unique ways to talk about so I'm really kind of like a it's really a teaching ministry is because it's it's me taking these things that I feel God has laid on my heart to teach through in and through the ministry and then pass them on to the general public to all of Canada or anybody that'll listen and say now you take these things and you go with them and yeah um right even now, within this latest um residential school thing that hit the news yeah, with Kamloops and yeah so it was interesting because I had, um, well, there was a reporter from the local uh, post media that um, does the Stony Plain Reporter and Spruce Grove Examiner, and and she got a hold of me because they had done an article on me before, and and I had done a couple of promotional articles to them before on some of the workshops I did in the community, and so she said, "Oh, w would you mind if would you allow me to do an interview with you about this?" Kamloops with the discovery of the mass graves and so then I said sure and so she came over the other day and interviewed me and my wife and and uh, she even said you know I understand you're a believer in Jesus and that's made a difference in your life and so then um, she took this really nice picture of us holding because we both went to this um, because we're both part of what's been called the 60 scoop generation about two years ago, we went to this 60 scoop retreat in Saskatchewan. So they gave us, uh, they gifted us a Pendleton blanket at this closing ceremonies um, at the end. And so we showed them those blankets and we, we wrapped the blankets around us because we were showing her, this is what they did at the ceremony at, when they, at the end of the retreat, they had us all sit in a circle and they, the people in charge each walked around with a blanket, took the blanket with two people each and wrapped it around the person in front of them and said, welcome home. And then gave them each of us a big hug. And because it was about um, all the 60 scoop generation being separated mm -hmm. from families. And some of us had met our families and some of them, still haven't met their families but it was all the people that were were in the foster care system like me and my wife and so that's why they were saying welcome home yeah. and they gave us the blankets and so i was telling her that story and i said could you take a picture of us wrapped in the blankets because that's what they did in uh when we got the blankets and so yeah it was kind of a nice thing because it's gonna she said though you're gonna be on the front page that's coming out this friday so so um and there was another person that got a hold of me and said oh could you write an article in response to what happened and so 
it's exciting when you get people coming to you and amazing with it? these types of things i guess it just shows that once been able to establish myself for a while then that's the neat thing is it starts to develop a life of its own where it's not just me reaching out looking for opportunities but then so are you still do you still have a relationship with the family that raised you uh yeah some of them have died off but yeah i definitely have a a relationship with my uh few of my siblings that are still alive oh good and i see some of my biological family too from time to time and the I don't see either of them really that much because I'm caught up with my own family now and yeah yeah I'm at I'm at peace with been at peace with it for a while now with regards to my relationship with with both sides the biological yeah. and the adopted family and yeah yeah I get this verse that means a lot to me it's in Joel and chapter two and verse twenty five. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with, with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. They, then you shall know that I am the in the midst of israel i am the lord your god and there is no other my people shall never be put to shame i was just thinking of how it seems like that's that i found that true in my life because i also wasted years of my life yeah and i could relate to that in your story that god has yeah. restored the years yeah, because when I first started to turn things around and not only sober up and get involved in the church again, but um, get involved in ministry, I I met a, an old pastor friend of mine, and that was exactly what he said to me. He said to me, oh, God's going to take all the years that the locust stole and restore them. That's been exciting because that's exactly what God has done. And when he, when the pastor said that to me that day, I wasn't quite sure if I believed them. I just said, mm. like, yeah, I, I kind of believe you, but it's, but yeah, I've just seen that come true, so true over the years that what he said to me at the beginning of my ministry is exactly what's happened. And, mm. and then you bringing it up again, too, it's just another confirmation that it's, because I've never been in want ever, ever since I sobered up and then went back to church and then specifically got involved in ministry. You know, we went from being practically homeless to living in an apartment to living on campus and then living in a, a three-bedroom house and then now living in a six-bedroom house and still having two vehicles. And and these aren't things that I've even really done on purpose. They've just naturally happened. Like Yeah. And uh, so it's been exciting how God has not only maintained us and sustained us but actually it's not like we're just surviving but we're actually feels like we're actually thriving where so that's the exciting part is i'm not thriving as in uh, yeah just thriving in a good way just um being being fruitful in ministry and 
watching that network of support system that I I have in place just expand more and more and more. And it's also exciting because it's it's been God right from the very start. Yeah. Mm. You shared with me um, in closing, uh, maybe you can just speak to this just briefly, that your daughter was sick. Oh, yeah. Um, How's that going? My One of my daughters, who's 20 years old, she had cancer when she was about 14. And then within a span of a year, got the cancer and then recovered from the cancer. But then now in November, November was diagnosed again as a 20 year old and and so this time it was much more serious it was um stage 3 ovarian cancer and so she's she's had major surgery she's had chemo and now she's on hormone therapy medication but um yeah it's she has a permanent ostomy bag and she has a couple tubes connected to the back of her kidneys that help her bladder drain. And so that's, it, I'm glad that she's seems to be feeling better lately, but it's always, if it's not one thing, it's another with regards to little trips to the hospital or, uh, you know, different and just kind of watching. She, yeah. Watching she her suffer. With you or does she live? Yeah. Yeah. Home? Yeah. Yeah, she lives with us, so it's easy to help take care of her. But um, even in the midst of that, where I've tried different times to, um, you know, work part-time jobs and bring in some extra money, and and then a few times having to quit those jobs because of needing to take care, be there for my daughter, and mm-hmm. and then watching God provide through people that support us. Well, thank you so much for being a blessing to us, and now we know how to pray for you in a in a more uh, detailed, positive way. Okay, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you guys. This has been a broadcast of Arrowhead Radio, a ministry of Arrowhead Native Bible Center. For good Christian resources, visit our bookstore at wabanakibooks.com. Look for a new episode next week, wherever you find your favorite podcasts.